Be joyful. Be joyful. Find it. Joy is a practice. That sounds like a workshop from someone. But yeah, that was not original, but also always good to hear. Yeah, yeah, stole it. Welcome to the Poet Salon, a podcast where we talk to poets over a drink we've prepared especially for them. I'm Gabrielle Bates. I'm Duji Tahat. And I'm Luther the Untold Story Hughes. <laughs> <laughs> Last week, we aired our October 2020 conversation with Carl Phillips about abstraction, action figures, and other words that start with A that I can't think of right now. Asterisks. Oh, that's a pretty word. It's a K in it. Abominations. Oh. Articulations. Okay. Okay. Keep going. <laughs> Adjuncts. Oh, no. Oh, okay. I can't say that. Cutting you off now. <laughs> uh, Sorry. For this episode, we got to talk about what is by far the shortest poem we've ever brought in, a haiku by Kobayashi Isa. Prepare to be astounded by how much we found to say about three short lines. Three short lines. Okay, I'm going to read a haiku by Isa. It's from a book that he wrote called The Year of My Life. At least that's how it's translated. This translation that is, um, first of all, the year of my life in in uh, Japanese is Oraga Haru. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, and Nobuyuki Yuasa is the translator of this book. And it's a it's a book of prose, more mostly um, or halfway. It's it's sort of like Basho's um, Long Road to the North. Um, it's a, a journey that is taken and by a poet and, and occasionally they stop and they write haiku, they share each other's poems and um, they encounter people in different villages and it's a year in the life of a poet. So <laughs> this haiku, which I've only ever known as just an untitled haiku, goes this way. The world of dew is the world of dew. And yet, and yet, oh, should I start talking? You want me to say something about it? Yeah, maybe just a why, yeah, why you brought the poem and what you're sort of thinking about. Yeah, I brought this in because I was, um, <sighs> Yi Yun Lee, who is a novelist, uh, led the, a reading group on Twitter. We read War and Peace from March until about May, um, and a book I never thought I would read, but we read it like 10 pages a day. And turns out that's a good way to read War and Peace. Um, it's less intimidating. And at some point, she and I end up, we don't really know each other, but we end up sort of corresponding by email. And she sent me this poem but with a title, she, well, what happened is she took an online course of mine um, on the short poem. And then she said, guess what, Carl? I'm not writing fiction right now. I'm writing nothing but haiku. 
And I thought, oh, as a result of this class, this is what she started to do. She's going to try to see how she is as a poet. And uh, she said, this is one of my favorites by Isa. But when she sent it to me, it was just what I read to you, but it had a title. And the title was On the Death of a Child. And I had never known of this poem having a title. And I asked her, is, is that what it's called? She said, well, that's what someone told me it was called. So I always call it that. And so I went back to this book and I'm just going to read to you. It's from chapter 14. I'm going to read to you, if I may, the prose that comes before this. He says, it is a commonplace of life that the greatest pleasure issues ultimately in the greatest grief. Yet why, why is it that this child of mine who has not tasted half the pleasures that the world has to offer, who ought by rights to be as fresh and green as the vigorous young needles on the everlasting pine, why must she lie here on her deathbed, swollen with blisters, caught in the loathsome clutches of the vile god of pox? Being as I am her father, I can scarcely bear to watch her withering away, a little more each day, like some pure, untainted blossom that is ravished by the sudden onslaught of mud and rain. After two or three days, however, her blisters dried up and the scabs began to fall away, like a hard crust of dirt that has been softened by the melting snow. In our joy, we made a boat with fresh straw and pouring hot wine ceremoniously over it, sent it down the river with the god of smallpox on it. Yet our hopes proved all in vain. She grew weaker and weaker and finally, on the 21st of June, as the morning glories were just closing their flowers, she closed her eyes forever. Her mother embraced the cold body and cried bitterly. For myself, I knew well it was no use to cry, that water once flown past the bridge does not return, and blossoms that are scattered are gone beyond recall. Yet try as I would, I could not, simply could not cut the binding cord of human love. Hmm. The world of dew is the world of do, and yet, and yet. And so in that context, it's so, I always thought this poem was about how the world seems just what it is, and yet there seems to be something more. But in this context, I realized, oh, it seems like it's talking about the world is just the same as it was yesterday, but I have lost a child since yesterday. And how do I account for that? And I love how in the haiku, I don't know if this is how it is in the original Japanese, but in the haiku, the and yet is just followed by an ellipsis. And it's like, and yet I, and it sort of encapture, it captures for me what I would imagine is the unspeakableness of the death of a child. And so there he has in prose described what happened. And this is what happened and this is what she looked like and our hopes were raised and then they were dashed. But at the end, it seems important to me that he turns to poetry to say, there's no explanation for this. Um, give me an explanation. And, and it's another example where the poem briefly holds in place, kind of as a place marker for, for that, but it doesn't solve it. You know, it's, you know, this, the book continues, the grief continues. So I, it's, it's made me think a lot about context. And first of all, the importance of titles. Um, I have students who often say, oh, the title, I don't even pay attention to the title. It can be pretty crucial. Or if you're not going to have a title, if you're going to anthologize a poem, how important it is to give the context for it. And, you know, it's kind of like, to move slightly away from it, it's kind of like when, I think Luther, maybe it was 
when you were here that we read all the poems of Robert Hayden? I don't know. Maybe that was not, I think it was that year. But there's so many poems that you encounter when you read them in their original book. But in an anthology, it looks like Robert Hayden only wrote poems about black history. That's what, oh, and one about his father on Sundays. And, and then you see that in the book, he's weaving African-American history, his personal family history, his history as an adult when he's not as a child, but as an adult in his own relationships. And that context makes it shows that he's a very complex human being, as opposed to, you know, this is his little road that he drives down. And, and when you invited me to be on this podcast, that information about this haiku had just come to me and I was so excited about it. And I, but I did think, what will I talk about? It's only four lines, but here we are. I've talked a bit, context, grief. There's, there's something uh, this poem does that you were talking about in your own work um, and how, you know, what, what makes poems exciting and that's kind of uh, challenging us to rethink these large and complex topics like love and anger and fear and death. And I too thought the poem was just about, um, before the context is about the world is what the world is and we move on. But in the context of uh, the death of a child, the world is what the world is, but also I'm adding this layer onto my ideology of what the world is. And so it becomes complex, like the ellipses become even more complex than just like a an afterthought, it becomes an afterthought after death of my mm -hmm. child, right? And so I think it's important, or in, again, thinking about, you know, the the role, quote unquote, um, of poetry and how it, um, you know, is made to challenge us and challenge these, you know, human everyday topics, right? To, to force us to think about them differently um, from day to day. And I think this poem really, really does that quite beautifully um, with the context and even without the context too, it still does that mm -hmm. in some ways. Yeah, it reminds me in some way of how I feel sometimes when I'm reading my own poems, because there's the poem in a book, but I know what brought me to write the poem. And so that's another thing. It's like the hidden context that the reader never gets to know, because, you know, we put a title on whatever. But um, I mean, I rarely call a poem something like after that argument I had with you about blah, 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 before we had the makeup sex, you know, that wouldn't be the title. But when I'm reading in front of a bunch of people in the auditorium and in my mind, I think, oh, I remember how I felt or I remember how hurt or I remember the pain that led me to write this. And, and so it's weird to be always traveling with the context in your head, but you can control that a bit as the poet. But it also showed me how... It reminds me how sometimes I used to think haiku poems were fairly slight and it's easy to think that, you know, because they're so short, but just to realize how much time can be spent just in this handful before knowing the context and then a whole bunch of other time with the context is exciting. And I feel like I learned a lot about writing by studying not haiku, but um, Tang dynasty Chinese poetry. Uh, it, it's where I learned a lot about compression and trusting an image to do a lot of the work for you. And yeah, it, it's, it's made me want to go back to thinking more seriously about haiku, not writing them, but reading them. You know, unfortunately you, when I, the anthologies I have here have like 300 haiku and I feel like it shouldn't be that way. It's almost like I need a haiku chat book just so I can just spend a lot of time with maybe 12 
you know, and just think about those and we'll see. Yeah. I, I really like this haiku because it's um, I, before the context, um, because it feels like it sort of goes against a lot of the way I sort of conventionally think about haiku. Like it is not really image based. Um, even the world of do is like not really an image, right? As much as like sort of a gesture towards an image. Um, mm -hmm. And then also like sort of it resists compression through repetition in particular, um, which like, again, like, you know, you've got 17 syllables. So like you think that you'd want to sort of jam as many different kinds as possible um, mm -hmm. in there to make it interesting. And so, so the fact that like, really every word gets repeated except for the word is right is really really fascinating and i like i really like the way that that repetition is like doing the work sort of pre-context of like there is more to the world than the world itself and then mm -hmm. like again like as soon as you add um the death of a child it's like repetition does something different right it's like yeah. you're like waking up the next day um mm -hmm. repetition in the light of that it's yeah, I wonder sometimes about that repetition too, if maybe it isn't the repetition of insistence um, or of resistance to what has happened, you know, to, to insist on saying it. But also, as you were speaking, I started thinking about the journey that happens just in the phrase, the world of do. We open with the world, vastness, and then do that is almost invisible unless you make a point of looking at it, looking for it. So there's this huge journey that happens in this little phrase. And those are the kinds of things that, that interest me in haiku um, because I'm, I'm very much about language being athletic and doing work. And, and, and I guess I think as spare as things can be is what they should be. Um, and that's just an example. It seems um, everything, the ellipsis, the, the movement from the world to do, the repetition you talked about. So there's a lot going on in just one very simple thing. And I think the mistake I have made, well, it's because of how I was trained. I, mean, I don't know if people still do this, but it's like in elementary school, we would have a haiku day. And, you know, and it was basically a matter of counting. And so, but that's kind of like writing a sonnet and saying, okay, I've got all the syllables and the rhymes and got a sonnet, but why do I not sound like Shakespeare? So maybe because you don't feel it, you don't, you haven't inhabited it. And I sometimes think that haiku, that the form is actually about vastness. It's about traveling vastnesses or the vastness of being a human being, but distilling that into something very tight and small. And I think there's a real, there's a real art to doing that. So hard. It's led me to try something new I've been doing. Actually, I did one in pale colors, but I've been doing this thing where, well, I have to, the title is not what it looks like on this, but now my newest poem, it has what looks like a haiku as a first stanza, and then it breaks into other things. And I wrote, well, I don't know where the draft is, but I wrote another one recently where it's all regular poem. And then the last stanza looks like a little haiku, um, but it's not a haiku, but it looks like that. But I'm interested in this idea of smallness, expanding, dilating into something or starting with the big thing and then the little distillate. It also reminds me a bit of what happens in Brenda Hillman's Loose Sugar. 
you know, when she has these poems and then these words are at the bottom of the page and she says they were like a precipitate that fell out of the poem. I'm just interested in that. Like what would be the, not the precipitate of words, but what would be the, the emotional psychological precipitate of this poem? So you have what happens and then this little trickle of feeling or, or thought. I don't know. This all come from my fascination with haiku now. This poem and many haikus in general make me think a lot about scale in terms of what you were just talking about, the these vastnesses and these teeny tiny particulates or whatever we want to call them. And particularly this one and, and Issa too, I know that he wrote a lot about the tiniest things in nature. So here we have the dew, but there were like a gazillion poems about snails and like little blades of grass and his name even means a cup of tea. There's like something very, yeah, there's this enamorment with the the tiny and its relation to the most like human shattering experiences. Like this, this poem is about the death of his young daughter, but he had, he'd also already lost a child before that. And there's this accumulation of, grief that is so large to to then look at this poem in relation to that and to think about just haikus in general as these distillations these little knives that somehow like puncture through there, there's so much richness for me in in that scale it seems like the type of poetry that makes the most use of that contrast between the vast and the tiny I agree. I think in some ways it also brings us back to our earlier conversation about abstract versus concrete. And again, for similar reasons, you can you need the concrete to hold on to in the midst of the swirl of abstraction, which is overwhelming, can be overwhelming, um, grief, for example. And it seems sometimes decidedly un-American, the haiku approach. I because I feel that what it requires is um, patience and attention. And these are not to me American characteristics or traits. Um, and slowness, the, the willingness to stay in one place and look at one thing and to say that's enough um, without the dazzle. You know, it's not, there aren't any adjectives here. It's not the glittery do or anything like that or the fabulous do. Um, but I, having been long called un-American as a poet, um, I, I wear that with pride actually these days. Um, but I, I feel like uh, how else does one, how could one even try to capture the world without looking at the elements in it, looking past the obvious to the small things that we walk by all day, the snail, the dew, so. There's something that also feels so respectful of a reader's time and attention to take the time it takes to make something very small and offer it up as this gift, as opposed to feeling entitled to a very long and wide ranging poem. There is something that feels a little un-American about like, here is this offering that's going to take up just the amount of time that it is going to take. And mm-hmm. Yeah, and trusting the reader, trusting that there will be a reader who 
we'll find that to be enough and, and we'll stay with it instead of just turning the page. And I want to say it's like an act of generosity on, on Esau's part, but I don't know if it's that it's more probably just how, how he was. Um, and, but, but it's an invitation anyway for the right reader to slow down and, and spend some time in this kind of weirdly difficult space. And yet I find even in that phrasing, the morning, the, the world of dew is a very beautiful phrase. And that's a conundrum too, how there can be beauty in the same space as grief. I love how um, the poem is kind of also kind of arguing with itself, right? And so we have the world of dew, right? Is the world of dew and like stating, stating the, the, the being of it. Like the world of dew is this thing. It's what it is. Here you go. But then the, and yet is then arguing with that statement that was just made. It's like, it's, it's very, um, it's, I guess generous is the word, right? To be very open about, um, you know, I'm saying this thing, but I may not believe it. Um, or I am saying this thing, but honestly, is it the actual thing that needs to be said, right? And so there's a there's a lovely resistance to the idea of being and uh, the idea of what the world is um, that happens right after stating, <laughs> this is what the world is gonna be. It's about vastness, but mm-hmm. is it about vastness, right? Is it about this actual thing that I just said? And it's very, yeah, generous in its, in its resistance. I agree, and I think, I hadn't really thought about that aspect of this poem, but you're right. I think um, you could say that it, it, yeah, it's like, it's very declarative. This is the fact. And yet I see something that is counter that, or I've experienced something that is counter to that. So in a way, the poem also enacts the tug of war between the stability we long for and the instability, which is all the stuff that happens that we don't expect and we can't control. Um, and uh, sometimes I think that's all that most human lives are about is you know this, this instinct towards settling and being at peace and saying, okay, I'm in my house and I'm safe and blah, blah, blah. But, but then there's reality. Being in a house and safe doesn't mean that someone can't break into it or you can't be dying of some disease you don't even realize. And um, I guess it's back to the precarity of just being a human being. And, but we want to believe that it's, that it's fine. It's kind of like when everyone's happy, in general, when people have, someone has a child and everyone says, oh, that's great. No one says, oh my God, good luck keeping it alive until it's an adult. But that's actually what I think in my mind. I think, my God, this thing is so absolutely dependent on these other human beings who themselves would admit that they have no clue how to be a human. And, and yet they're, they're supposed to raise one. Oh, sorry. I realized I brought that up to our father in the room here. Um, <clears throat> but, but it's, it's scary. And, and I sometimes think one of the most frightening things maybe about being a parent would be feeling that you need to provide stability and an appearance of all is well. But you could sometimes be thinking you're losing your own shit and the world's on fire. And, but you can't say that to like your three-year-olds. I mean, or you do, and then, you know, you're maybe fucking mm-hmm. maybe they're in therapy for yeah for the rest of their life so <laughs> they would be either way um yeah 
Um, I'm really interested in, uh, I mean, like sort of related to all of these things and like distillation, like I can't help but think of uh, like haiku and haibun as related, as far as I understand it, as related to sort of like travel writing. Like Mm -hmm. there's a, like a lot of movement within sort of between those two things, like physical movement as like part of the context. Um, And like that distillation of um, like literal space, right. As well, uh, as well as like the poetic space. And I guess I'm curious how, how, and even in this haiku, I think it's like, you know, it's, it's the world, it's sort of the exterior, you're seeing the interiority of the speaker sort of really up against the exteriority of the world. And I guess I'm curious how um, maybe you view in your own work that kind of like traversing of space and like the distilling of the interiority, like how you see those things coming up against each other. Oh, that question seems very hard all of a sudden. Um, hmm. How do I see interiority working in response to exteriority yeah i guess so and i think like movement is another part of it too like how maybe um you know i think you're you've talked about uh in i think in this conversation and in the previous conversation about like how sometimes you're reading poems and the whole context of it you know might appear to you um but Mm -hmm. like not in the poem um and so i guess like you know you obviously don't feel that it's necessarily important to the poem itself like where where do those sort of decision making like how do you decide then like what is important to the poem and what's not? Well, I don't want to seem like I'm just some unconscious creature, <laughs> but I don't think about that. I I don't. I mean, I I guess I I guess it, it's just a natural instinct to like say for example I uh, I don't know break up with somebody it never occurs to me to write about that um, because I don't find that subject interesting. Um, But what I'll start to think about is since I've always been the person who does the breaking up, which is the best position. um, I I'll stop and start thinking, who are you, Carl? Like, you know, do you think that was, I mean, you've changed a person's life in some way forever because of this. They thought things were a certain way and you've just now changed all that. And that will lead me maybe to write. Um, and, and I won't even know I'm writing about that subject. I'll be writing about some, something I saw in the woods or something and, or a tree fell and, and then, and then I'll realize, Oh, this is me exploring a kind of guilt that I think I have, even though, to go back to the haiku and yet, and yet I'll think, yeah, I feel guilty for breaking up. And yet this person was very controlling. And so I'm not a bad person, but why do I feel like a bad person? So, and that's the space from which I often start writing of feeling this tug of war between who I'd like to be and who I sometimes disappoint myself in turning out to be and trying to come to grips with that. Um, so by the end, I feel like it doesn't matter where it came from. But, and in that sense, it's interesting because you could say about this haiku, doesn't matter where it came from, it's, but the context changes it so much. But for me, I guess I'm not, in this way, I don't feel like I'm a confessional poet, even though everyone says I am. Um, I don't feel like I'm a, 
I'm not trying to be confessional. I'm not telling this is what happened. Um, and yet it is confessing something, but without telling the bare narrative of what happened, which is a different thing to me from confession, which is to me, confession is uh, sort of digging in and, and discovering something from inside um, and letting it speak. But that doesn't have to be the narrative of a, an episode in your life. So um, again, I fear I may not have answered the question. No, I mean, it was sort of a random question, but I think you're sort of getting at what I'm asking, which is also like a kind of, um, so much of the experience of reading your poem that I see also in this haiku too, is like the cogitation, I guess, like the way that like you're the, the thinking becomes the sort of object itself mm -hmm. as opposed to like the thing that provoked the thinking mm -hmm. um, and sort of like the prioritization of that. Yeah. It's interesting in hearing you talk about it even um, right. Like that is more interesting to you. It makes sense. Like, cause then the poem sort of becomes about that. And the haiku, the, the haiku we were looking at, you know, I read you the prose part. So that's like what happened. The, right. haiku, the haiku seems to be, here's what I feel. Here's what I feel. What happened is one thing. Here's what I feel in the wake of it. And, and that is, and, and, and then also what the poem to me is also saying is, here's how much I can't say what I feel. So I'm not saying I'm sad. I'm not saying that um, my, my kid died or anything. I'm saying nothing makes sense. It doesn't make sense. N the beauty of, this, of the world and the do, the fact of it existing makes no sense. But, but at the same time, it's real. And, and, and that makes no sense. And so, yeah, I feel like the poem ends up telling what I often say in my classes that it has a psychological narrative, but it's not dealing with the narrative of the story of what happened in somebody's life. Um, but it's tracking the movement from recognizing beauty and sameness and also understanding, but something very unbeautiful and different has interrupted what I thought was this beautiful sameness of my day-to-day -day life. And, um, and to read the poem to me is to understand a bit how that feels to be, to be tugged at by that and not be able to resolve it. I guess there is a lot going on in that poem more than here I thought. There is. What will happen? But, there absolutely is. And I, yeah. I love that naming the psychological narrative because that is absolutely happening in this poem for me, even without knowing the context, mm -hmm. just with the repetition and with the syntax of starting with what seems like a full sentence, the world of do is the world of do, and then ending on the repetition of the fragment. It's a very haunting poem. Like there, it is enacting the thought loop of a type of grief, of a type mm -hmm. of horror in a, in a very small amount of space. Yeah, you know, I, when you say that, I was just thinking, yeah, you're right. It's like it's pitching sentence against fragment, which you could also say is pitching wholeness against brokenness, which when you start translating that into psychology or emotion, emotional wholeness versus shatteredness. And, um, and to me, that's enough of a 
trajectory of, an, of a narrative in a poem, you know, whereas I think a lot of people would say, well, nothing happens, you know, nothing happens here. I think something does, but you have to actually spend time because I've been one of those people who just would read across a poem like that and say, okay, that's nice. A little phrasing here. That's, that's interesting. But, you know, I could spin those out all day and then, and then to realize, oh, you actually can't, Carl, if you actually want to do it and be able to talk about what you wrote for even five minutes. So, yeah, last night on Instagram, somebody whom I don't know, but I follow, was quoting some, I think a Basho poem. And I wanted to know what book it was from. And it's from this guy, Blythe, who I guess in the fifties did a lot of work with haiku and all of that. And he wrote this thing in four volumes about the history of haiku. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go order it on Amazon. And then I learned that just to buy a single volume is like 600 some dollars. And I kept, I spent hours thinking, oh, there's got to be a cheaper. And then there was one where all four volumes in paperback and that one was like 998. And, and the thing is I have this, the school gives me this budget. I can just buy books at random. So I could do this and just get reimbursed. But I, even I can't justify it. I feel like that's a lot, almost a thousand dollars for four paperbacks and of haiku. I don't know, but I'm on the trail. I'm going to try to find it. It's got to be an affordable version. You should email Open Books a poem emporium well, in Seattle. Yes. yes, but there's Open Books. I thought Open Books was new poems, new books. Oh, no. We've got like old special collections, used books, all well, sorts of good stuff. I will because, but I suspect if you have it, it's going to still be pricey. It might be. I mean, if it's rare, it's rare, but... <laughs> we'll see it's one of those things you can't really suggest to your partner like you know i know you're wondering what i want for christmas but i don't think he has in mind a thousand dollar situation i think we're kind of keeping it around a hundred so you know it's hard times pen, pen, <laughs> you know? so gotta store our money for the groceries and plus our escape route you know when all goes to hell in case we have to have money and buy guns and stuff and all the ammunition. So that's what everyone's been saying to me. Everyone's saying, so you you have considered now, because when I first moved to St. Louis, everyone said, you're gonna buy a gun, right? No, I am not buying a gun. But now people are saying, okay, now you understand you're gonna need, you're gonna need to protect yourself. I'm like, I I'm not protecting myself that way. But even my partner said, maybe we should get a couple rifles. He said, no handguns, just rifles. I can't do it. I'm not. So angry. intense. It is intense. And I think, is that what it's coming to? And he said, we're going to be in the streets. And it's like, we can't be like, I don't know. I've got pocket knives. I always carry a knife with me. So, you know, there's that. There's that. I remind myself that. I have lived in a time when I thought that there could be no future um, a few times. And, and probably the worst is when I wasn't even aware of it. Like when I was like two or three, when all the, you know, civil rights movement things were happening and, and uh, dogs being set loose on people and everything. And I, it's like, wow, I would never have thought, we could get past that. 
Never thought we could get past Reagan. It seemed impossible. And then I never thought that there'd be a life after the Bush years. But I think Luther, you and I were talking about how it is also strange to have lived in a time where it's kind of relentlessly negative. Yeah. That is hard to face. But we have to stay strong. I'm just biding time until you come up with a question or something. I feel I've left you listening. No, I think we're, I think we're done. <laughs> we just like, now we're just being quiet on purpose because we know you'll keep talking. <laughs> I know, but who knows what I talk about, whatever. It's like, <laughs> we stopped. So. Uh, oh, this has been so beautiful. Yeah. What what a gift to be able to just like hang out with you in this way. I'm so glad you carved out time for this. Yeah. Well, I hope it is better. And one day we can be chatting in person, all of us. Yeah. With cocktails out of a, what is it? A Buffalo horn goblet. Yes. A silver rimmed Buffalo horn goblet that you get to keep. That would be really nice. <laughs> We're gonna find one. We'll make it happen. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna spend the time between now and then mm-hmm. finding this goblet for you. Carl, thank you so much for geeking out with us over this hastened haiku, which is kind of redundant. And yet And yet And yet and shout out to <laughs> Jack Straw Culture Center for making us sound crazy, sexy, cool. To our listeners, I know you missed us and trust us, we have missed you. So much. Uh, love ya. Mm. And because you love us, obviously, rate us five stars on whatever platform you're currently listening. Follow us on that bird app known as Twitter at Poet Salon Pod and send along your favorite bird website, favorite bird recipe, and favorite bird podcast to me, but also to the Poet Salon Pod at gmail.com. Just send that to Luther. Just please send it to me. literally on Bird Web. Are you on Bird Web right now? I, Are you on Bird Web? I, surprise you guys, I actually am Bird Web. <laughs> <laughs> the living Bird Web. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Spaghetti and spaghetti, Betty and spaghetti, Betty and spaghetti, Betty and spaghetti, cause my crew rock steady, Betty and spaghetti, Betty and spaghetti.